Welcome to the 126th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Reed Farrell Coleman, three-time Seamus Award-winning author of the Mo Prager series. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Reed Farrell Coleman, author of the new Mo Prager mystery novel, Onion Street. In addition to the Mo Prager novels, Coleman has written many other mystery novels. Coleman's Mo Prager novels have been widely award, uh, awarded, winning three different Seamus Awards from the Private Eye Writers of America for the best novel of the year. Reed, welcome to the podcast. Uh, well, thank you for having me, Jeff. Sure. Well, at the beginning, could I have you read the first page or two of your new book, Onion Street? Sure. Uh, here goes. Prologue, December 2012, Brooklyn. Some men are born to die. Some, like Bobby Friedman, are just so full of life that you can't imagine death will ever touch them. Even as I sat in front of his coffin, and his rabbi told story after story of Bobby's mischievous spirit and seemingly boundless generosity. I couldn't quite accept the fact of his death. Like any of us who knew Bobby, I assumed he would be 18 forever. During the worst of my treatments, when all I wanted to do was to, to surrender to death, I'd sometimes amuse myself by thinking of the eulogy Bobby would have delivered at my funeral. Now here I was at his. What are you smiling at, Dad? Sarah leaned over and whispered. Although death had been so much on my mind over the months since my diagnosis, I wasn't sure I could explain my smile in a way she'd have understood it. I wasn't sure I understood it completely. Instead of answering, I winked and put my finger across my lips. Shh. I was done with my treatments for the time being. But the surgery and the chemo had left me a frail shell of my old self, ashen and skeletal. I tired easily, and I was still too weak to be trusted behind the wheel of a car. So Sarah had come down from Vermont to take me to the funeral. She said she wanted to come visit anyway. We had things to discuss, she said. I didn't like the sound of that. I dreaded the day she would ask me to move up to Vermont with Paul and her. Surely, said the rabbi, it is no wonder to any of us who love Robert that, of all things, it was his heart to finally succumb. There is only so much in a man to give, but how many of us truly give everything we have? Even the most charitable among us hold back a little in reserve. Not our Robert. Wherever his journey takes him now, he will go there having held nothing back. God will look at Robert in the eyes and be proud of his creation. I will miss him, I think, more than I could have imagined. I already do. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, Onion Street, yet, how would you describe the novel? Onion Street is kind of, although it's the eighth novel in the series, it's actually the first novel in the series because it is uh, the story of how Mo Prager, my protagonist, um, finds his way to the police academy and eventually his way to become a private detective. 
Um, so it's Mo at 20, m- much earlier than you meet him in the first novel in the series, Walking the Perfect Square. <clears throat> and it also takes place in 1967. So it gave me a chance to revisit a time in my life that was a very interesting time for all, everybody who lived through that era. Um, and so it tells the story basically of Mo in college. His girlfriend is beaten into a coma and suddenly he has a purpose in life. He's going to find out what happened to his girlfriend, Mindy. And the story goes from there. That's great. And do you remember how you got the idea to, to go back and write about Mo in 1967? Yeah, sure. Well, I, uh, the the series is coming to an end. There's one more book. It's called The Hollow Girl, and that'll be out in 2014 on Tyrus Books. But drawing to the end of the series, I realized, you know, Mo, when you first meet Mo in the first book, Walking the Perfect Square, he's in his 30s. He's been on the NYPD for 10 years, and he hurts his knee, and he has to, he's retired. So that's when you meet Mo very early on in the series, but he's already 30 by then. He's been a cop for 10 years. He's lived his life. He's, he's, he's a little world worry. He's jaundiced. And I thought, gee, before I end the series with the last book, I would really like my fans, uh, Mo's fans to see what Mo was like at 20. And I thought, gee, what let's show, uh, the fans and the readers, what Mo was like at 20. How did he become a cop in the first place? How did somebody, a fairly liberal kid from Brooklyn, uh, go into Brooklyn College? How would a guy like that, and, and during Vietnam and the protest, why would he become a cop? So I thought that was the setup for the the book. That's how I got the idea for the book. Interesting. And you just mentioned that with the next book, you're, you're ending the series. What was that decision uh, like for you to, to end the series? Um, well, I, this might be a slightly long answer, but it's, it's the accurate <laughs> answer. The answer is that I, I, I loved Hammett and Chandler, but those guys did something. There's a conceit in old kind of detective novels that I never liked, which was the kind of the unaging detective. Um, you know, one case, one happy customer leaves the office and just as that client's leaving the office, the next case walks through the door. So you have, you know, a constant sort of stream of good case, you know, last case, new case so that the detective never grows. You know, the detective stays the same age. Well, I, you know, that's, I never enjoyed that. I, uh, to me, watching a character develop and change and evolve sometimes devolve is what makes a character interesting. It makes it interesting for me to write. So um, when, when, like I said, when we meet Mo in Walking the Perfect Square, a novel I wrote in the year 2000, Mo is 30 years old. By the time the hollow girl is done, he's 65. So, I had nowhere really to take him. It's kind of hard. You know, Mo is a kind of hard-boiled, noirish detective. It's kind of hard to figure this 65-year-old, although 65 can be young these days. I had trouble figuring him 
to be a tough, hard-boiled guy. You know, what was I going to move him down to Delray Beach? And he was going to find people's walkers and scooters and, you know, not, not to make fun of older people. I just didn't buy it. I didn't buy it to write it. And if I can't believe it, the readers aren't going to believe it. Um, and, and so I thought, you know, let's just end on a good, you know, let's end it on a place where people still believe it. As Mo said, yeah, in the earlier books, Mo used to, you know, Mo had kept his badge and he used to flash it at people to pretend he was still a cop. Right. And, 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 and um, recently Mo has say, said that the only thing he could flash with any credibility anymore was his ARP card. So, you know, it just it just got to the point where I felt, you know, let's end the series here. And and I know it's still probably early, but have you thought about what comes after Hollow Girl? Um, for your for your own yeah writing? yeah well yeah I've I've I have already I've always have a million things going on so um, I've have some books that I've wanted to write for years that I've you know contra- contractually I haven't had time to write um, I have a YA science fiction book that I'm halfway done with. I have some straight literary novels that I've thought about writing about. I also write a um, a PI named Gulliver Dowd for a Canadian publisher named uh, Raven Books. They're an imprint of Orca, Orca Books Rapid Reads. Uh, so they're novellas featuring a little person detective named Gulliver Dowd. So yeah, I'm I'm always I always have stuff to do. Gotcha. So when you originally started writing, what what was your path to publishing your first novel? And and when you did start writing, did you know from the very beginning that you wanted to write detective and mystery fiction? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question because I think everybody, you know, I have a son who's an illustrator and he's going to school for illustration. And, and one of his big concerns is like, OK, I have this education. I have this, this skill set. But how do I actually make the leap? And I and I always tell them everybody's way in is different. In the arts, everybody has a different way in. And so mine was kind of in, I think is interesting. Um, I I'd been writing poetry since I was 13 years old, and um, I never thought of myself as a prose writer ever. Uh, you know, I, I I could write it, but I never really thought of myself that way. Um, I started publishing getting poems published when I was in high school. Um, so I thought I'd go to college, I'd study poetry, um, I'd, I'd get out of college, I'd get a job, and I would write poetry and publish it. You know, poetry is not a path to great wealth. Um, <laughs> I like to say, if you want to be poor, be a writer. If you want to be destitute, be a poet. Uh, <laughs> you know, poetry, you know, people laugh, but the fact is that most poetry, when you publish, they pay you with copies of the magazine. So, you know, there's, unless you're going to build uh, build uh, fires in your fireplace with them or use them for doorstops, you know, you're not just you're just not going to get wealthy with poetry. So um, uh, after I left school, I got a, I, uh, amongst many jobs. I got a job as a freight forwarder uh, working at Kennedy Airport in the Cargo area, Kennedy Airport. And uh, once a week, I used to go from the airport to Manhattan for meetings. And there was time to kill in between the time I'd leave work and I'd have these meetings. 
So I decided, you know, let me let me do something productive. Uh, let me take a class back at Brooklyn College. So I looked at the the uh, evening class schedule, and there was only one class in the English department that sort of fit my schedule, and that was American Detective Fiction. And I took the class, and the first two books we read were The Continental Op by uh, Dashiell Hammett and Farewell, My Lovely by Chandler. And I knew. I knew that's what all the training in poetry was aimed at, not poetry, but writing uh, detective fiction. And that's how I came to do it. And then, of course, I quit my job. My wife said, go ahead. You know, if, if it's going to make you happy, do this. Uh, my wife has said yes twice to me in her life and regretted it post time. <laughs> <laughs> so she said, go ahead. You know, if it's going to make a, you know, we'll be happier if this is what you're doing. So it took me about three years to write uh, my first novel. Uh, it's called Walking. Um, it's called Life Goes Sleeping. It featured a, uh, an insurance investigator named Dylan Klein. Um, and I sent it out. What the process was is a process that would never work now. I had a friend who worked at a law firm. He copied the novel for me, and I sent it to every publisher in the you know the writer's guide. And one of them said yes. That's a great story. Well, that that's amazing that you just took this class and that that was it. Yeah, it's a good thing I didn't take poetry of the French Renaissance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so when when you're when you're working on a new novel, do, are are you an organic writer or do you know uh, the the basic plot and before you start uh, sit down and start working? Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> no, the answer is all of the above. I never outline because for me, and it's not that I have anything against outlining. I'm a big proponent of what works, works. Right. You know, if you have a process and it involves you doing a 30-page single-space outline with a character Bible, then that works for you. Do it. Not me. I'm not an outliner. I'm a totally organic writer. But that doesn't mean that I don't have... There are some books that appear fully formed in my head. Like last year, I had a standalone novel called Gun Church. Um... Uh, in fact, it just won the Audi Award for the best original uh, material uh, on an audio book. Um, and uh, that book appeared to me in my head full at all at once as of a piece, right? So mm -hmm. that book worked that way. Uh, Onion Street was more of a, I knew I wanted to write a book about 1967, and I knew I was had a lead up to the end of the series, and I knew so I knew things about the book, but I didn't really know the book, right? And I right. sort of had an idea of like one of my older brother's friends from that time was kind of the inspiration for the character of Bobby Friedman, but I didn't know the book, so I just sort of sat down and started writing. Um, and there are other books in which I'll read. In, uh, the the uh, Mo book that preceded Onion Street was called uh, Hurt Machine. And, and Hurt Machine was the result of <clears throat> something I read in the paper. I don't, I don't know if you've – where do you live, Jeff? No, I, I live in western Massachusetts. Okay. So this, this is a story that, my, that did get some national press. But about two or three years ago, a pregnant woman stumbles into a restaurant in – 
I know it sounds like a setup for a joke. Uh, no, it's a pregnant woman stumbles into a restaurant. And she can't breathe. And there are two EMTs uh, eating lunch in the restaurant, and they tell her, call 911 where at lunch. Oh, my God. Wow. She died and the baby died. Mm. Okay, that's a tragedy, but it's not a book. But three months later, I was reading the paper, and one of those EMTs who refused to treat the woman was murdered in Brooklyn. Now that's a book. Yeah. So that's yeah. where that book come, came from. So I know this is a kind of a long-winded answer, but the fact is, to me, they're all different. The process is all slightly different with each book. Sure. So, so given your success to date and your your novels that you've published and the awards that you've won, what what advice do you have for someone who is an aspiring writer and would like to, you know, one day have their own novels or short stories published? Um, go go into therapy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's on cheaper. the one hand, on the one hand, I don't want to be discouraging. In fact, I. I teach writing at Hofstra University, and I'm a founding member. I'm a founding member of Mystery Writers of America University. So on the one hand, I really, you know, try and put myself out there to help people become better writers. But on the flip side, you have to do more than want to be a writer. You have to need to be a writer. It has to, you know, not let you go. It has to be like a calling. It can't just be a casual interest because it's a very hard business and it's a, it, and it's a business that's in the midst of a fundamental revolution. And so you really, really need to want it more than anything to do it. And then if you say, yes, I need to do this. I, I more than anything, I need to do this. I would say, um, Forget all that advice about social media. Forget all that advice about marketing plans. Put all your energy when you're a first beginning writer into writing the best thing in the world. The best you know how to do it, do it. And then write it again. Uh, uh, one of the things I find with beginning writers is they fall in love with what they've written instead of falling in love with writing itself. Because let's face it, uh, you have to do a lot of anything to get good at it, right? Sure. Anything you need to get, you know, no one wished themselves into a starting to being a starting pitcher for the Red Sox, right? They worked at it. No one wished themselves to be CEO of a company. They worked hard to get there. Well, there's this kind of belief that, you know, I'll sit down, I'll write a novel and it'll get published. Well, no, it's the same thing. You have to work hard at it and not be easily satisfied with what you produce. So that's, that's my advice is to, to work very hard at what you do and to not be easily satisfied by the results. That's good advice. So, so you just mentioned um, in passing this, the, the revolution in publishing. What, what, what are your thoughts about that? Um, um, yeah, that's, you know, that's interesting. There's a, there's a great Chinese proverb. May we, may we live in interesting times? Mm -hmm. Well, in publishing, the, these are interesting times. Uh, or let me do a uh, Dickens quote. 
these are the uh, uh, Dickens paraphrase. These are the best of times, and these are the worst of times. Um, in some ways, if you are wedded to the traditional um, publishing model, you're in trouble because traditional publishers are changing their model on the fly. Um, advances to beginning and mid-list authors are very low. Um, and the traditional mod, you know, and publishers are increasingly taxed. Traditional publishers are increasingly taxed, not literally, mm-hmm. but they're ta- they're, you know, with marketing and, and publishing and, and it's expensive and they're kind of reducing their sales so that a lot of what used to fall to the publishers to do now falls on the authors to do in terms of marketing and traveling and, and uh, doing signings and events so that the traditional model is kind of being blown up. Um, on the flip side, um, there's eBooks present an amazing source of income. Like for me, my backlist is on, uh, you know, is available. Almost my entire backlist is available on, you know, as eBooks. And is and that controlled so, by you? Um, I do not self-publish my eBooks. I, my, largely my backlist is, is controlled by Tyrus Books. Got it. Mm-hmm. But I get a very healthy percentage sure, sure. from them. And, you know, uh, you know, so a lot of people self-publish their backlist if they have the rights. And that's great, right? Because they get a higher percentage. Right. But they have to market it. Exactly. You know, that's always the, the part you don't hear about, about self-publishing your backlist. Sure. Is you, it's your business now. You know, it's your, your product. So like any business that's your business, it, has, it becomes your life. Yeah, As, exactly. um, Yeah. So, um, and I'm talking about self-publishing your backlist or self-publishing your work as an established author. We haven't even gotten to people who are now just self-publishing. Exactly. Yeah. Which I think is a huge mistake generally. I think generally it's a huge mistake because that's where is in the past, to go back to my previous answer, in the past, and, and with the old model, to get published, you had to work very hard and you had to be very good. And rejection, nobody likes rejection. I certainly don't like rejection. I may like it less than anybody I know, but it's part of the life of, that I've chosen. So rejection was good. It's good for a lot of people because what it does is it makes you work harder or it makes you quit, right? Mm-hmm. It's one or the other. You either work harder or you quit. Now people don't have to work hard to publish. They get a few rejections. They say, screw this. I'm going to self-publish. Well, is that really good? You know, are they going to go through the, are they producing the best book they can produce? Are they giving it to a copy editor to make sure the punctuation is right? Are they giving it to a a paid uh, independent editor to see if the content is right, to see if the plot works? You you see what I'm saying? It it seems like a great opportunity, but I also think there are great pitfalls in self-publishing. Sure, Um, sure. So, So what books or authors have you read in the last year or so that you would recommend? Those are that's very easy for me. Um, <laughs> as a as a as an author, uh, one of the things that is an occupational hazard of what 
of being an author is, for me at least, is I don't enjoy reading as much. Interesting. Because it's, it becomes analytical, it becomes work. Right. So right. when I find an author who, you know, I can still lose myself in his or her books, I, I am desperate for their books because it's rare. <laughs> and so my, my, I can give you a list of people, you know, many of whom you've heard of and the audience will have heard of and some of whom I don't know if they've heard of. Okay. Okay. Um, number one on the list of writers I most admire and read is Daniel Woodrell. Uh, Winter's Bone, Tomato Red, uh, The Maid's Version. He, he, to me, he's the Shakespeare of the Ozarks. He's an amazing writer. Uh, he's, he's a poet. Have you ever read him? Uh, I have, I have. Yeah, he's just, I, you know, and I'm, I'm proud to call him my friend also. I mean, you know, it's like having Shakespeare as your buddy. It's, it's <laughs> a, for me, it's like a great honor. Uh, another person on that list is Megan Abbott. Uh, do you know Megan's work? Um, I know her work. I haven't yeah, read her. Yeah, I love Megan, Megan Abbott. Her most recent book, Dare Me, uh, is probably going to be made into a movie. Uh, she has her style that is unique that, um, you know, it's funny. I always say, I love Megan and I love Daniel, but please don't ask me to ever imitate their writing style because I just <laughs> couldn't. And that's what I mean. I mean, I get lost in their work because the way they draw me in is the way they write. Sure, it's not sure. only the plot, it's the way they write. Yeah. Um, uh, a really underappreciated author whom... I just think is, is amazing. His name, Peter Spiegelman. Uh, his most recent novel is called Thickest Thieves. I interviewed um, him for the podcast. Yeah. Pete, and Peter and I are, are close friends, but he is an amazing writer. I mean, absolutely amazing writer and completely underappreciated. Um, Philip Carr or Philip Carr, uh, uh, the Bernie Gunther series. Mm-hmm. I, I, again, he's another writer. I just, I, he, you know, I, I love it when fans tell me write faster, you know, I need to read another book. That's the way I feel about Philip Carr's. Like I always, he, he's good. He puts out a book a year, but it, it's never fast enough for me. Yeah. Um, Stuart Neville, uh, he's a Northern Irish writer. Um, really excellent, excellent writer. Um, then, then in quick succession, uh, S.J. Roseanne, um, um, uh, Peter Blauner, Jim Fusilli, all, all writers I really like and enjoy. That's great. That's great. So what are you working on next? Um, what am I working on now? I'm working on my next Gulliver Dowd novella. Um, and I'm working on something I really can't talk about. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. And, yeah. and finally, where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me online at reedcoleman.com. 
I, I left my middle name and middle initial out because people are always misspelling it. So it's just reedcoleman.com. And I have a pretty neat website with uh, photo galleries of me and all the real famous and rich authors I know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a listing of the books and where to get them and my short stories and stuff like that. It's it's kind of a fun website. And I'm on Facebook as well. And, and although I have a Twitter account, don't try and reach me through Twitter because it's, <laughs> I, I wish I liked it. I really do. But I just don't, I'm not very good at it. So you, I'm on Facebook and, and at my website and you can reach me at both through Facebook and my website if you'd like to. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Reed Farrell Coleman, author of many award-winning Mo Prager novels. His latest Mo Prager mystery, Onion Street, is in bookstores now, so grab a copy. Reed, thanks for doing the interview. Jeff, thank you for having me, and thank you to everybody who's listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com.